you move to a different polling station. Exactly. Now it might be recording, so everyone be on the best behavior. Okay, thank you, everyone. Well, we start with that. This time, I'll remember we start with our instructions. All right, hi, everybody. My name is Luke Mortensen, and I'm a planner, and I'll be working with Chair Finkel Die on the Zoom uh, portion of this afternoon's meeting. Um, new housekeeping items, you've heard these before, but this is a hybrid meeting. It's being reported and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. For those of you on Zoom, please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function of this meeting is disabled, but all of your chats will go to me and I'll do my best to respond to those as we see them come through. Um, unless you're participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. Uh, which is helpful for us here in the room, you'll be able to hear the meeting still. When you're participating, please turn your video back on. If you have any trouble, like I said, please send that chat to me. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individuals individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And I'll send it back to Brad now. Or sorry, or sorry um, Brad is real live. Brad's funny. Okay, thank you everyone for being here. We're gonna, um, Elizabeth will fill us in. We'll continue our conversation. I know we've had some public meetings. Don't know that you'll, how much you can update with something else. And uh, get into do some of that discussion and then uh, head towards our next meeting. So I'll just turn it over to you. I'll take a slow roll in this because Gabby's Zoom decided to update right now. Um, so we are going into the um, second half of module two. And um, I'm hoping everyone had a chance to at least dig into some of their favorite sections. So tonight we have Article 13, Environmentally Sensitive Lands and Natural Resources, Article 14, Landscaping and Buffering, Article 15, Exterior Lighting, and then um, always measurements and definitions and anything else the group wants to come back to. We have some, um, some big questions to look at. And so we'll start with our sections first. I'll bring us back to some of the big questions and then turn it back to you guys for discussion. So um, environmentally sensitive lands and natural resources is where we pull together um, all of the standards about places where we either don't want to see development or we want to be very cautious about how development takes place. Um, in some cases, it's because we have life safety issues, and in other cases, it's um, because um, not the, the actual construction might not be challenging, but it might um, cause um, detrimental effects um, in other locations. It might have kind of a spillover effect. Just to let you know, um, we've been management regulations and really haven't changed stuff you want to talk about. Um, not going to stop anybody, but there are no big changes in there. But, and I want to talk about it. What's that? You can talk about it. Wait, don't. Yeah. Flood plain management. I don't think the state will let us do that. Marcy, you can't shoot. Okay. So. Good, but I'm willing. Nothing. <laughs> I'm just losing everything. <laughs> um, so there's a, a couple of issues with floodplain management regulations that we want to consider. Mm -hmm. And I think they are um, confusing and unintentionally combined in a couple of different circumstances. So the, the first one is that um, a lot of the regulations in there are 
designed and built around the idea that you are building in the floodplain. Um, no fill, no elevation certificates. I mean, you are actual at floodplain elevation, right? And um, that doesn't happen. For instance, it has the requirements about no fill within 20 feet of a building. You know, a lot of things in there that um, are contemplating that you've just gone out in I think carpet flood way, but would be the floodplain fringe and are building a house or a building or, or something like that. And that is, I assume there's probably some circumstances where that could technically happen in the city of Lawrence, mm -hmm. but for the most part, it doesn't. So there's a lot of things in here that are just um, maybe we've passed, we are antiquated, ought to be updated. Um, so that's that's one set of circumstances in there where you are, and, and maybe you leave them in, but you isolate them such that they're defined that you are just an individual development. Am I making sense? So just, just a clarifying question. When you say um, they're antiquated, that makes me think that there was a time when they had a purpose and they made sense and they were right to be there. But as we've grown, we've grown beyond where that used to be a, a, a factor. I'm not challenging. I just. No, no, no. That's a good point. Um, based on FEMA regulations, they still could happen. Based on other rules that we follow here in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, if you, if you, um, wanted to plant a piece of ground in, in Lawrence, Kansas, um, you're probably not going to be able to pull a building permit if the land is all in the floodway fringe. You know, now, now it, since it's in the floodway fringe, it's possible to do that based on FEMA requirements. But there are other constraints in the city of Lawrence that would make just doing that difficult. Right? So it's, it's possible and it's and, and a lot of this has fingers like all of our regulations has fingers in a lot of different different places. Mm -hmm. So that's one set of circumstances. The second set of circumstances is where we are in the where and and Luke knows some of you know exactly what I'm talking about it is where we have a piece of ground. You know, Lawrence is surrounded um, north, east, and west with floodplains. Right, everything we do. In the in the going future, is going to deal significantly with the floodplain going forward. These regulations, uh, without uh, a lot of gyrations, which we are now working our way through on a, on existing project, make doing that unreasonably difficult. They make building in a floodplain developing uh, because we can take it out of the floodplain, right? Right. So what are we doing to the overall system when we do that? Well, that's part of the FEMA design. I mean, if 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 you fill in the floodway fringe, what's the definition of floodway fringe, right? It's that area that the floodway doesn't exceed more than one foot. Right? Okay. So so that's part of that's part of that's part of the for everyone. So that's one foot of flood water. Right, but it's contemplated in the whole system already. Now, the floodplain maps are going to get up. What do you mean by it's contemplated in the whole system? 
Well, because the the, the uh, HEPRAS models that you run to determine where the floodplain and the floodway fringe are mm -hmm. have already taken that already into already into consideration on the right, on the base flood elevation. The, you put an obstruction in the floodplain, right? When you fill and build, right? So you're changing that modeling. No, but the original modeling is already contemplating that. If you read through the documentation of the floodway fringe and floodway development, it, it's already contemplated right. that in the base flood. Yeah, I'm just going to come back to, though, before we pitch these, is there's a reason we have regulations keeping people from building in the floodway. I, I, I understand. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I was joking when I said pitching, but I think, mm -hmm. I think we, need to, we need to update them and, and make them more manageable because I think there are a lot of, they overlap and they're confusing and they're not contemplating because it is it is and will be desirable for us to develop in the floodway fringe. Now, if we want to say as a community, we don't want you to develop in the floodway fringe, well, then let's just say that. So we, we don't have a clear policy on what we want people to do in the floodway fringe? We do it on a case-by-case -case basis? Um, I think that's probably accurate, yeah. So I think starting with some clarity around that would probably be a good idea. I think that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Uh -huh. yeah, I have a clarity question. How much of the tier two ground is in the floodway fringe or, or floodway as currently defined by FEMA? We have 7.87 miles in the tier two, uh, square miles in the tier two area. How much of that is floodway or floodway fringe? This is what we check for as whether he's got it on his maps to determine what's available for each of the different zoning categories. Now, I can't remember whether he had that as ground you can develop on or not, or if it was something you're being categorized in some other. Yeah. Good question. I think it's something we can find like out. see clarified. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a technical question that the mapping can we can figure that out so well and it's it's functional because you know why would we call it either tier two or tier three if the answer is is that no you can't develop it yes yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> no i think it's a very very valid well, that's a good question okay i would just add i think there's probably a sizable number in the community that wouldn't like your clear-cut rule that we don't build there, so I, I don't know what sizable would mean. I, I don't. Well, I don't know necessarily sizable. Yeah. Size. <laughs> so, I mean, we're both making assumptions about mm -hmm. how many would support which side. Yeah, I mean, I'm not making a, an assumption about one way or the other. I'm just voicing my own opinion, right? I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a a technical clarification of what we're saying in this. Well, a policy question in there first and foremost, yeah, and then yeah. we can get to the technical clarifications well, because it matters very much where we think we are building as a community. It gives guidance to developers or builders, right? Exactly. You can if we get the clarity in there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a yeah. I think, and, and then we and, 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 and then the other thing that's mm -hmm. that needs to be contemplated in there is we know. Um, you know, a, a certain portion of our floodplain maps are now currently being reconsidered or, or redone, right, for a bunch of different factors. 
And if we've annexed ground and we've defined floodplain overlay districts, what happens to those floodplain overlay districts when the floodplain boundaries either increase or decrease? How does that happen? I mean, what's the functional process of all of a sudden you got a piece of ground that is 40 acres and 10 acres of it is in floodplain overlay district and then the new maps come out and, and you've got plans or you've got you know bank loans or something like that on it and then how does that work? Right. So I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Do you get, know the answer to that? I would assume we remap. So the, if it's a newly annexed piece of ground, the the floodplain overlay tries to anticipate the changing floodplain in the future mm -hmm. and has the floodplain regulations go out farther than the actual mapped regulatory floodplain. So if the new maps that are coming out and the whole city is not being remapped, only portions of our floodplain, if the floodplain maps change from FEMA, that would be the regulatory map that we use, but our zoning lines would not change. If we did our job right, they would hopefully match the new maps or what we anticipated would hopefully match the new maps. Does that but, make sense? But, but I don't think you've got that ability in here that says that you have, you can make your floodplain overlay districts bigger or different than what the maps are just because you're anticipating what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so if you want to do that, I mean, that needs to be also something that's spelled out because, again, you know, we're talking about clarity, right? We're talking about something that we can anticipate and know what's going to happen. Yeah, we can, we can make the maps adjust to match the FEMA lines. Or, or we can talk about, or we can make the lines anticipate. Anticipate. We, can anticipate. we can do both of those, right? Yeah, yeah. So currently, if if some if a, if a piece of property on the edge of town is annexed in and has floodplain on it, regulatory floodplain, the floodplain overlay is automatically added to whatever city zoning district they are going to. And we are looking for two feet of freeboard, and that's just two feet additional beyond the regulatory floodplain. That's our anticipation that we talk about. We think that if we develop this community further, that when FEMA gives us the new maps, that two feet of freeboard might be filled in with regulatory floodplain. And so that's why we think that, if, again, if we did our job right, the, the new maps from FEMA would kind of get closer and closer to the lines that we talk about, the, the, the lines that Phil is talking about. What Bill is also saying is the city's anticipating Bill to that two-foot freeboard line or homes up on stilts. If you are developing commercial or residential in a in a zoning district that has the floodplain overlay, yeah. the zoning component, there is a two-foot elevation requirement. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So yeah. something to look at. Yeah. Something to look at. Thanks. Anything else hiding in there? Yeah, and then Luke, maybe you can fill us in. So it also extends. Also, fill us in. It also extends to larger drainage districts. What, what has been your experience in floodplain overlay districts with non-FEMA related floodplain overlay districts, as it spells out in here? I don't. Um, to be honest, most of the projects that I've worked on, if it is in a drainage district, we will let them know. The Caw Drainage District, for example, will comment 
on projects under their area. Typically their comments are similar to what we would be asking for on the city side. So I don't know if I have an example of, of I think it, it doesn't it identify drainage basins that are greater than 640 acres or something also needs to have. Um, I don't know that where that 640 number is coming from, but I know that our application for any development floodplain references are in the district and that alerts us to alert. Okay. okay. Um, and um, maybe I missed it, but is there a no rise definition in here? We do not have a definition of no rise in our code. And when there's no definition, we have to go with kind of the most literal understanding of the, of the phrase. And that, as you know, has been of interpreted differently across different levels of government and across different levels in different developments. So it's something we ought to clarify, right? Absolutely. Something about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think from the little I do know, that is a specific project issue right now. And so I feel more comfortable if we didn't try to bring specific project issues into this because we're doing the big code. I gotcha. Well, what, what that comes to is um, not as much in this one, but there is a, a lot of references in here to the discretion of the planning director, right? And and the no, the no rise is one of those that shows up, but it's it, it gets more and more as you get deeper and deeper, right. especially in right. section, right? My understanding so is I think that we ought to have a conversation about how frequently we use at the discretion of the director. And if we're going to use that, then there ought to be some criteria that go along with that versus just throwing out that, or the planning director can, you know, agree to some changes. Yeah, so this washes both ways because there are times when we want to say wow there are 14 different ways to do this and we think we want to give the director discretion um so let's think about how we want to do this my other question was if i remember correctly the state signs off on the floodplain regulations do they not it goes to state review and they probably have model regulations out there so this doesn't have as much discretion in it on the city's end, perhaps as some other sections. That's a, that's a perhaps on that part that I'm not so sure is as strong a weight as you're giving it. Okay. Okay. Amending the floodplain management regulations is, is pretty process intensive through the state. Okay. When you're saying, so I'm asking, you're saying if this part of our code, if we change this part of our code, someone else has to agree with folks. Correct. Mm -hmm. Do we approve the first and we ask them it's okay? I wish Amy Miller was here because I would I'll I'll defer to her on that one. Because she I've not been around for an amendment of the floodplain management regulations, but she has. So okay. yeah, but we work in a lot of Kansas communities that have floodplain regulations that are a tenth of this. Yeah. So to think that we're no, I'm not asking. I'm just asking the process. Yeah. Can we approve it first and they approve it? Do we actually have to get their approval first before it comes yeah. to us? I think we draft it and give it to them. Oh. And then we say prayers and we have offerings. Okay. And we see what's going to happen at that point. Who's I would accept the offer. Don't remember who. It's who it? Division of Water Resources, which is within the agriculture. So not FEMA. That's Kansas State. That's mm -hmm. correct. That's the Kansas State version of equivalent of. 
Kind of, yeah. I just don't want to get the end of this and find out like we're about to vote on it and someone's telling us yeah. he can't approve this. I mean, I don't make sure. Just note that. Let's figure out the answer and make sure we're headed. And I'll just add one more because I know, Elizabeth, you want to move on. It's good. Our floodplain regulations are a little are stronger than other communities in Kansas, but they also match other communities because we're a CFIP community. We are part of the floodplain insurance program. And so people in Lawrence can get reduced floodplain and flood insurance because we have higher development standards than some other smaller or other similar sized cities in Kansas. <laughs> that zoning overlay that we talked about is an example of that. Mm -hmm. So I think to, to think about, I think where our chairman is and where Phil is and the what you're sharing with us um, will fast track what drafting changes we anticipate for this piece so we can kick it off for further review. So this might- Yeah, that's all the weeds I've got for this one. Sure. <laughs> all right, are we up? Let's go. What do we got next? Oh, we got the PowerPoint. Thank you. Yes. Okay. We do have a PowerPoint. Um, so here we are. We covered some of this tonight. This is what we got. So along the same lines. Um, so we removed most of the engineering design standards and specs from the current subdivision regulations. And just as another announcement, right now they're in the shared regulations with Douglas County. We've pulled standards in to look at. We're not sure where they're gonna land, but this is where we are. We have started having discussions with, and we're gonna go into some of that tonight. So one thing um, one thing I wanted to start in with is, is some of the questions that we've had over the last day um, and the conversations that we've been having are, um, people kind of diving into the regulations and asking what improvements are required. So for those of you that don't do this daily, so when someone develops, they um, typically have to put in the basics, some streets, some some information. So the question is, how can responsible for what is being responsible for? So in, um, in the past, we've always lived in subdivision, we're moving it into the site of the intersection of the road. Do we want to turn that off so no one, like, gets a migraine from the flicker? <laughs> um, like distraction. Um, so we, and we I can't get out. Yeah, well, okay. so, sorry. Yeah. We can't turn. Turn. Okay. We can turn this we're going to see uh, redevelopment in Lawrence that may not require subdivision, but may require infrastructure. And so we wanted to be clear that someone who's redeveloping is responsible uh, for the things on the list and for the dedications um, that you need to do with development. And the thing that has um, that has come up um, in, in a couple of places that we need to talk about um, as we go through the regulations is we're not um, we're not linked yet to a full multimodal transportation system plan, right? And so what we say in the code is you've got to go do what the plan says. But when we don't have a plan, um, we we have some gaps to fill, and so we're going to need to have some discussions about that. We also in this draft are at a starting place 
um, for the stormwater management system uh, regulations in terms of the code. And um, particularly um, with respect to um, some of the greener infrastructure aspects of it and um, looking at um, um, low impact design requirements. So as, as this group um, kind of pushes the code out forward, these are some things we wanted to flag and I wanted to leave it in context for everybody. One of the things I wanna point out in this conversation is, um, is item C2 on there. The improvements shall be constructed or provided by the applicant at the applicant's cost. So why do I point this out? Um, because as we talk about this and load stuff up, we need to bear in mind what it means to the people that bring development forward. We need to bear in mind what the city's priorities are and what we want to implement with the plan. Um, but we also can't turn this um, into a full-on Christmas tree with all the ornaments because that has cost implications. So I just I wanted to point that out at the beginning because I know that we'll have this conversation multiple times as we go through this stuff. So this is where we are. Um, we're figuring out what some of our details are and we're figuring out how that affects cost. Why are we figuring out how that affects cost? We're a community that wants to see um, more complex development, um, more expensive development, and more housing. And so we need to think about what bells and whistles we're looking for as we balance that out. Um, having said that, I don't have a side in this argument, so I will poke everybody. So let's go on to the next one. So is solid waste part of this? Oops, sorry. Well, you asked me that, and I can't manage this thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, we don't do the solid waste regulations except to say. No, it's on my computer. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, except to say that you have to put, um, you know, dumpster sites in and stuff like that. So. But, but right now, the Land Development Code does not require that in those um, areas where there are dumpsters. Does it wait? You've got the new section in here that says you're going to provide room for the trash dumpster, the composting, and the recycling within the same area. Does that answer your question? What are you thinking? Give me some more. Well, here's the problem you okay. don't need a dumpster on every site in a district that has shared dumpsters. You don't want every. Yeah, no, we don't say that. We just no, but, but then how do you get dumpsters in that area? Because they're not required in the land of, I mean, they're specifically in the land development code. I think you don't have to have a place for a dumpster if they're served by trash dumpsters. And then if you're not doing at least a fourplex, you don't have to have a site plan. So you don't get a dumpster. So we have we have a situation where we don't require trash pickup in that area because of the connection between the land development code and our solid waste ordinance. And so somehow that has to be figured out because as we develop more density, we really do want to create create an opportunity to collect trash. Yes. Yes. Um, so snarky me is thinking, but if we build in the floodplain and then just let it wash, <laughs> no, that's not an answer. Okay. So I was following you there for a minute. <laughs> it's um, Jeff or Becky or Luke. Um, anything we want to say about solid waste, or is this just out of your realm altogether? When does it come into the process? When are we looking at this? 
Really solid waste will get into the process at the site planning level when they're having those. She said it. it we have development in the Orient neighborhood that is allowed without a site plan because, uh, it, you know, if you're single family, you're duplex, you're triplex, you don't need a site plan, right? Right. So then people don't have to have trash pickup. I... This is absolutely a problem in the 1100 block of Ohio uh, or 1000 block of Ohio in Tennessee. And right now, our, we have a site plan that is not compliant because our neighbors said, oh, too many students put trash in and we didn't like it. You have to take it away. And the city didn't have any way to say that um, location had to have trash. Isn't that under the public health code? It's not under anything. Mm. Should be in the public. So code. people, I, and if we don't resolve this mm -hmm. through this land development code, you're going to have more problems because I have property that has two of those dumpsters, and we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to say yeah. no, we don't want it on our side okay. either. Okay, all right, we we can't have that outcome. <laughs> so I do think because of some of the other stuff we put in the code that we will um, talk about what goes into site plan review, probably still not single family, probably still not duplex, um, but I put the big asterisk in the circle next to it. So that for me means, let me go figure out further what other options we have. And um, I think it's an, it's an interesting example for us to hold on to as an idea for when we get to procedures because we know staff has told us there are things that don't have an end procedure. Um, so maybe it's not, doesn't have to be actually site plan, but there's something else we could do to make sure it's going on there. So let's keep that one as our yeah, example. So, so one idea example. would be rental um, registration would require, if you want a rental registration, that's what the city commission said and okay. because of that we haven't solved this problem okay there might be other ways to do it but i'm writing down rental registration <laughs> then i'll just go make a new hair appointment to get it dyed <laughs> i'm gonna need it okay we're not paying for that <laughs> no, no, my husband pays for that. He'll tell you about it. Oh, no, I meant the rental registration. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so another thing that's come up. Oh, hey, Brody. You want to let him know? Okay. Um, just kind of, uh, we're doing kind of a little more stream of consciousness tonight, but it's nice to have everyone jumping in. Um, we had a question about where are we going with solar orientation in the subdivision design? Um, so, this falls into the category of, hey, we can probably go further. And our our instructions from this group have been consistently be provocative, go further. So have there been discussions about solar orientation, which is not solar-ready housing, but it's laying out the subdivision so you can use passive solar to do some warming, maybe not on a cloudy November day, but on other days. Is there, is there any conversation in the community that we need to know about with this? Does this idea seem interesting to the group? Kind of falls into the category of we can toss it in and see what the feedback is, but we'd like to hear from the committee. Well, yes, solar should be included and somehow make it compatible with 
the area that it's in. There also shouldn't just be um, new residential lots. It should be existing lots as well as commercial. So this is just how the house is set on the ground. Oh, so it's going to have to be the orientation. It could be redevelopment. We would make sure it's applicable to that, but we can't do anything with existing short of jacking it up and trying it. Yeah. So what is the, uh, so as a builder, yeah. what, how does, what, let me try to phrase this. Is, is there a limitation to density in a subdivision if all the houses had to be orientated a certain degree? Yeah, so we usually do it as a percentage of the lots in the development because we realize you could end up losing space by having to do it for everything. Mm. Um, is that so, the 30%? So this one is like, this is from another community. We put it up as an example. So um, we did 30% of the new residential lots to be oriented to true east-west solar orientation. Um, I've seen and, communities do it a little bit higher, higher. I don't remember anyone doing it much above 50 or 60%. Um, that would be something that we would love if the um, developers in our group wanted to sketch it out and see what we think a reasonable number or a range would be. I was thinking that the energy code that we, the building code kind of covers this a little bit anyway, too. I mean, you, you have to do your design of your HVAC based on the orientation of the lot. So I don't know if 30% seems kind of high. I mean, it's, since you're doing it on every house in the subdivision already. Oh, you mean like the HERS rating? Yeah, HERS like ratings. Not the, yeah, we do for house orientation. Every single house oriented to maximize the solar passive solar flow through? Not necessarily. I don't um, think to maximize, but we are required to provide. Account uh, for it. Yeah, to, to account, account for yeah. it. And it, and, it, and it evaluates how the house is orientated and scores it. And then if the lot is orientated in a favorable way to passive solar, your score would be higher. Okay. Yeah. But. Okay, and that's energy code or building code? Well, it's the energy code that's part of the building code, yeah. right? Okay. We have to do a HERS rating, home energy rating. Yeah. Yep. Part, that's of, part of building code. Surveyor hmm? hey, said that HERS. Yeah. yeah. So having done that, is there a number that you've seen? I mean, I don't think we need it in the code if you're already responding to that. I was just curious, like on a normal subdivision, I mean, depending on, I guess, how it's orientated mm -hmm. and how the roads are set up and, the, mm -hmm. you know, the lot, how the houses are set on the lot. I mean, uh, you would think that 25%, a quarter of them, just in simple math, would be orientated in a way that you could do that if yeah, the if builder wanted to. Automatic. Yeah. And I'm with Marcy on this one. If we're already but, doing it to meet building code and energy code, then it may not be moving the dial on this. The other way to look at it though is if we, um, one of the other things we've been talking about around sustainability is are there incentives um, that we could put in um, for lot size adjustments for, um, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I and just started talking about this one today, so I don't have my adjustment list, but are there incentives that we could use that would encourage um, you know, developers to lay out more lots that way. So your HERS number would go up, but also it would be meeting a sustainability goal of the city. Yeah. I mean, my experience with putting, you know, solar on a house or that extra cost, I've always let the, the buyer determine that because there are some incentives to 
to doing that, but I've not heard of a developer or like a spec builder choosing yeah. to do that because uh, and you can also design a house, you know, roof design to maximize solar gains too. Solar yeah. Or a homeowner could choose to do that. Yeah, out north south. I mean, you can slope a roof a different way and design a house to, to gain think, that. I think what she was asking is, I mean, let's say, do we want it to say if 60% of your houses all east west maximize, your density can go up by 10%? Um, yeah. you might put 30% with just, an exception. Like, I, mean, I was using these. I do like an increase in density if if you have that, but I don't I don't like necessarily having 30% should be required yeah. to have that. Would yeah. that be an option? Yeah. Well, I think the question was don't have it at all. Yeah, yeah right. One, option one is say nothing about it. Right, yeah. Option two is to say the only time you mention it is in relation to a, an incentive. Right. Yeah. I think that's and, and I'm just I'm just thinking through the last couple of years worth of subdivision layouts and how many times do we have the choice of okay our streets are going to go east western or south I mean so many of those are a function of other factors that we really don't get a choice of hey let's just make all our streets go east west uh, I mean we just we never get to that point to where. We could take advantage of that just kind of on a wholesale basis, yeah. and so yeah. it just doesn't work out. So on the on the sub on the rare subdivision or the occasional subdivision where it could work and there is an incentive that might be enough to move the dial to get one of the builders to say, yep, "I'll do it for the extra density." I'm, I'm not sure it move the dial, but yeah. Well, we need to do something to encourage it. So I think that's awesome. so. Is there? I mean, you know. Is there a way that we would want to have more of a grid, you know, that we have in some of the older neighborhoods and encourage that? Because it really helps people who live in the houses um, to have that. I mean, we have an ordinance that has some goals. Right. And so I, I know that in the Oregon neighborhood, you should buy an even-numbered house rather than an odd-numbered house. Because you get Solar. sun on the back deck for breakfast and shade in the afternoon. I mean, there are really advantages to people buying these houses based on the orientation. So if we know that, why wouldn't we make that part of understanding when we provide that development? I thought that development got got away from a grid block system yeah, a long yeah. a long time ago due to vehicle traffic and and lots of other reasons. You know what vehicle traffic works really well on a grid based system. I'm I d I don't know. I'm not. So I mean that's that's an interesting yeah. do what do we want to encourage in terms of traffic systems in any new developments? Because you know there's problems with um some people like to live on a cul-de-sac, but it's also harder to ride your bike and walk and get to places. So that's that's something we should be thinking about as part of, you know, if we expand, right. what is the pattern that we'd like to see? I guess where I'm struggling a little bit is there's a lot of value decisions being made in, right. in terms of where do you want light when and 
that I don't know that we can plan for all of those values in the code. So, I mean, unless there is some particular, I mean, I think we should be encouraging solar and, and alternative energies, absolutely. In my mind, it makes more sense to do that as some kind of incentive rather than a requirement because what I don't want to have happen is lose opportunities to develop more housing or redevelop additional denser housing because there's not a good way to orient the property to maximize or, you know, so I just, I, I so how would, how would that happen? How would a requirement on orientation reduce the amount of housing that we could get? I'm not saying it would reduce necessarily, but I mean, if there's way, and I'm not a developer, mm -hmm. Um, but so if you guys want to chime in and, and help fill in gaps for me, I mean, if, if there's an issue with the way the streets are laid out and you're not going to be able to orient a number of properties to maximize this, to hit that 30% mark, it who may... lays out the streets? I do. Yeah. The developer. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the streets are laid out and then the developer is following them. It's... But, but there's... Marcy, you're making you're making this sound like there's just one or two things that dictate how streets get no. laid out. I mean, it is it is a it is a long process. No, it's cut fill, it's hills. It's, yeah, I mean, it's walkout lots versus, lots versus slab on grade. Um, it's uh, sound of adjacent streets. You know, how can we orient the houses to where you're not hearing the traffic on adjacent streets? There's just a lot of things that go into that. I think I think an incentive or just a reminder that we ought to try to orient the houses for solar, but that's just one of a whole long list. And if we so happen to get a bunch of them and they can get some incentives out of it, great. But um, you know, uh, I think I think that's probably down the list a little ways. If you can do some incentives and move it up the list a little bit, as far as there is an efficiency. Uh, question about grid streets, though, and I also think there's an infrastructure cost savings to the city long term. And we have an ordinance, and I will will continue to remind this group that we have an ordinance that is pushing for 100% renewable energy for our community. Yeah, so, that was the thank you. That was the thing I was going to come back to. So we have, you know, within Plan 2040, we have. Um, instructions for this project and sustainability is pretty high on the list. So I think that there are things that we want to talk about as shells and things that we want to talk about as incentives. And I'm not quite sure what the mix is going to be. I, I know from working in other communities that not everybody does curvilinear streets anymore. We do see grid street development going in. Is that not what we're seeing in Lawrence? Um, no, we've got we've got quite a few grid street projects on the books right yeah. now. Yeah. But it's a function of but it's a function of you know uh, you know like Hunters Hill totally grid street project, um, but the stars align because the hill runs exactly east west <laughs> you know so um that worked out nice okay um when you're adjacent to a river or a, a stream you don't get to do that and then those lots have a lot of backyards that face the south which is ideal for solar project yeah, yeah. So, so they would have a lot 
Well, let's move. Let's. There's there's so much we can talk about. Like one of these nights for a month. But um, let's move into stormwater management. There's a question from Rebecca on this. Oh, thank you. Sort of thing, and I don't know if anybody's watching that. So, and she may be off now. She was on for a while. Well, never mind. Sorry. You might have ordered a tears with fish. I spoke too late. Oh, don't see a chat. Never mind then. She was on there. I I'm on. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. I, I did want to say that I like this. I, I'm i moved by the discussion whether incentives make more sense over versus over-regulating because I get Phil's point. You know, sometimes the landscaping determines this, and so you don't want to ever stop units from being built. But from a commitment of ours that we're doing solar on all of our new infill construction, you know, we're learning that sometimes that make it's amazing. And other times, you know, we're still willing to put it in, um, but it doesn't do as much as it could because of the orientation. So I just like the idea of us thinking about it. And, and again, maybe it's incentivizing that thought makes a lot of sense, but um you know, even putting even less than 30% where people just have to consider orientation or, or, you know, we're saying this is a value that we want talked about, um, I think makes a lot of sense because I think we'll be doing solar with everything soon enough. So, um, you know, as part of the industry of building, I think we could be progressive in, in just really being, you know, consciously making an effort to think about this in the planning phases. And really, I like the idea of solar ready. Um, and I know there as an added expense when you're developing new development that may not be used. But if it's solar ready, then the owner can make that decision. Are you saying that as a requirement or as something that's subject to incentives? As a requirement or as, as subject to incentives, because if we don't start requiring that, how are we going to get to our 100%? Well, that's a building energy question more so than... Well, it, it, it follows along with being able to do the solar. I'd like to also remind us that solar can be passive solar. It doesn't necessarily need to be... Yeah, I think that's where we started with this yes. orientation. That was passive. It's passive solar. So yeah. let's make sure that you have a building that can welcome sun, um, you know, has a roof line that does that, um, you know, has more windows on the south than on the north, those kinds of things that don't necessarily mean you have to have solar panels. I don't think we're going to get to the place with every house having solar on the roof just because our utility company may not be able to manage that. As you think about it, I'd also say that um, it doesn't necessarily need to be exclusive just to a rooftop. There's, there's right. other surfaces and, and you can think about that um, also in the way a neighborhood's built. There may not be any structure suitable for an orientation for active solar. So maybe there's a separate something there community solar may eventually come to our the other thing i'd suggest is that as you think about it um you know passive solar is what it is um active the technology there is evolving like crazy you can already put shingles on a house that are 
um, active solar collectors. There's a, a number of technologies and things back behind it and storage and and how that all comes together that make this easier as we go. The, the idea though, that we have this as a foundational part of what we're doing, as opposed to trying to look at density through the lens of east-west orientation, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. look at density for its own purpose and then find the right ways to make sustainable energy a part of it. I know you said you want a bigger question. So everyone hold that energy thought. We're going to switch to stormwater for a minute. Right. So could we at least agree that incentives is something that should be done? So, yeah, I, I think that we're going to go in and do some redrafting and um, propose some incentives and give some everyone something to respond to. Because <clears throat> most of the time, um, you have to be able to think about, okay, how's it going to lay out and what's it going to be? So let's do that. Okay, stormwater management and natural area protection. If you've had a chance to read the draft, um, starts on... I oh, know I have the wrong version. Anyhow, it's section 201304. This is this section is new. Um, it comes from work um, that MSO, that stormwater team, um, has been doing with an engineering firm. Um, it is focused primarily on um, natural drainage path preservation. So that's a broad idea. It's um, streams and runoff. Um, so it's not necessarily um, streams that flow all the time. Um, it says in the definition, berms, channels, swales, similar non-man-made changes to the landscape um, designed and graded to be an integral part of the natural landscape. So, um, so let me back up here because I just dove right in uh, to that rabbit hole. If, um, if you don't um, do zoning all day, every day. So now we're talking about um, when... Stormwater, literally storms, um, lands on the ground on your property. What happens to it? And so these regulations, um, the city is required to deal with stormwater. The more we um, urbanize and build, the less we have water infiltrating into the ground. It's running off. Um, and so um, the city has to deal with it. Part of um, why we do this um, in the zoning code is because A, we're letting people know upfront what their um, requirements are gonna be on site. Um, so sometimes in the zoning part of this, when we have a lot coverage standard, it's related to the city's stormwater calculations. So they calculate um, how much the land gets covered with um, surfaces that are just gonna run rainwater right off. And they try to figure out how much the uh, water the stormwater system is going to see. So our kind of evolving instruct instructions are um, to start with the language in here as a model and to think about doing um, some stream buffers and some stream preservation. Um, also to think about coming up with best management practices. So those are um, designed approaches to low impact development. I'm sorry, it's like a jargon word every three words. I apologize for that. Um, so low impact development means I'm figuring out how to get water to infiltrate on my lot. Um, so that's like the um, Kansas City's 
a billion gazillion rainwater gardens was a thousand rainwater. I, I exacerbated it, but um, I exaggerated it. Okay, so we're thinking about a few things here. Um, what did we do to preserve the places where water's going to go? What do we do uh, to hold water on property to get it to soak in? Um, and how much of this do we want to be natural or green infrastructure? How much of it do we want to be built or gray infrastructure? Okay, so that is the five minute stormwater explanation. Does anyone want to do it better than I just did? And jump in because I'm positive I missed a lot in there. <laughs> I'm curious how you get density with that. I'm sorry? <laughs> how do you get density with that? Everybody has a rain barrel and everybody has a <laughs> Right, right. And then you learn that song that my mom used to sing about her rain barrel. <laughs> um, no. So how do we get density and do the on-site? They don't go together. Right. So we look at like we look at different solutions in an urban setting no. than we look at in a more suburban or rural setting. I don't think that we're going to say with a straight face, you know, one rain garden on every lot in downtown is going to solve this. It is not. So that is probably where we're going to have more built infrastructure. Um, we are seeing really fun, groovy things like um, someone was explaining to me how they were building infrastructure that. Um, as the water soaked in, they had a water treatment process right there. So it went in dirty, came out clean. Um, so we want to think about how we um, adjust that going forward. But for the purposes of the zoning code, we're, we're really, you're right where we are. Like, what are we doing on the lot? Um, and what are we doing kind of bigger picture? Bill, you want to jump up? <laughs> One of my pet peeves. Uh, we want density. We want redevelopment in established neighborhoods, small lots, yet we, through the building code or implementation standards, we require large areas of impervious surface. Uh, I really would like to see somebody address, and we also want affordable housing, yet we're, we're spending several thousand dollars to increase the size of concrete pads or people like me who don't want them, okay? So I'd like to see that particular thing. How impervious surface, concrete slabs, driveways, infill, why can't we save several thousand dollars in redevelopment cost by having well-contained gravel beyond the apron sidewalk interface? Just to make sure I follow, are you only talking about like driveways and parking lots essentially? Because the house is not what you can do about that, right? But are you, you're talking about parking areas being impervious and that's the problem? That'd be an easiest way to accomplish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm talking about driveways. Okay. I'm talking about the 18 to 20 foot wide, 40 foot deep slab that, uh, that has to have one parking space per bedroom yep. right in the house. So I completely okay. agree. And okay. we used to have gravel as an allowed paving paving material that got taken away a couple of years ago as part of the updates to Article 9, which is now Article 12. But <laughs> at, at the time... The gravel ended up in the storm surface. Right. I mean, it wasn't because we didn't like gravel. It's it has just... to be contained. What? It has to be contained. I agree with that. What's going to be done? It can be done. We have the technology. Yeah, but it's not that hard. Around it. The Egyptians had the technology. Yeah, it can definitely not, be done. It's not rocket science. Okay, so. That wasn't gravel with that. <laughs> <laughs> there is impervious concrete now, but it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I'm impervious. I, I, yeah, I know. 
Yeah, it's just yeah. That, yeah, I, I won't bring down costs though. Too. Yeah, I know that goes back to abortion. Would you would you add the six foot wide sidewalks to your objections? If, is I mean, or is it like in front of our house? We you know, there's a sidewalk on both sides of the street, and they're redeveloping the storm sewer and the street, and they're sort of saying you should have a wide sidewalk. And I'm sort of going, really? Corbin GSP is on the other side of the street. We can see where people are walking. Do you really have to replace this brick sidewalk that's been there? Um, and why? Because the brick actually allows some brick is slightly more impervious. Than yeah. Them. Yeah. Okay. So lots of things here. <laughs> lots of things. First of all, I thought gravel had to be free, but apparently it can be contained. Oh, it had to run free, but now I know. No. But I'm guessing there were um, stormwater problems, maybe air pollution problems in the summertime too. Gravel can get yeah. mostly yeah. mostly stormwater. I think. Forty finds a sheep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the two main issues that we had were ADA compliance and stormwater. Okay. And, and one correction too, it was only permitted in the floodplain. Gravel was never an approved surfacing material in the yeah. non-floodplain areas. That's interesting. Okay. And so how do you think ADA when we have to drive it? over it? Well, there's a number of solutions that I've used. You can do well-placed railroad ties, use railroad ties I've used in the past, very inexpensive if you get them from BNSF, uh, or you can go more elaborate with, you know, 12 gauge steel, four inches deep with rebar. There's a bunch of ways to do it. It's it's not it's not difficult. Cinder blocks. You, you, yeah. Or, uh, you could, but you have uh, to drive over those, those right? Concrete yeah. curb. Does yeah. this feel yeah. down oh, um, Anti-concrete, yeah. Uh -oh. Yes. <laughs> with, with concrete, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. I'm to save money. Duly noted gravel and um, These are awesome. driveways, infill, aprons, idiots. I guess my question is but I do think, I mean, I, I guess I was going to, on the bigger picture, I do agree with one of the, what, you know, one of those questions there is, you know, competing, maybe a little bit of competing values between density yes. and, and stormwater. And, you know, again, you don't, I mean, big picture, I'm, you know, concerned that, you know, someone, you know, flips to this section and says, oh, I can build, you know, 12 units here and we can get lots of density. And then you flip to another section and say, oh, yeah, but stormwater taketh away. Right. You can only do four units because stormwater limits you. I mean, I think, again, stormwater is important. I'm not making use that as a bad example, but an extreme example. But let's make sure we balance that. Right. Not let one take, right. take it away. And, and I, I don't think this defines very well what your channels are, right? Because I mean, it's been issues with us. So, yeah, agree with you. Um, I, I think um, it's also more focused on uh, the natural drainage path pr preservation and like not so much on the on site stormwater mitigation. I, I think we're going to. Uh, redo this one a little bit. Because it goes all the way down to two acres for any area. Yeah. It's just, it's just well, that's everything. So does the gravel make a difference based on like a hillside or topography? 
I've never done it on real steep slopes. So but and and but this is, I mean this is an issue. If you have parking in the Orient neighborhood, yep. I mean it could be on a 10, 11. Yeah. Again, slope. I don't think we're saying you you have to put gravel in. I think we're saying you have the option to put gravel. Yeah, but I'm sort of saying you put gravel in on a 10% slope yeah. and it's much yeah. more likely to move. Don't you still have uh, gravel alleys? No. Gravel well, with their gravel alleys, maybe in East Lawrence, there's Orient's mostly asphalt. I mean, there are, there are, they, they do this conversation way back up to, hey, what are some options out there yeah. that don't look like as much as much concrete on the site as we can possibly. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to figure out how to accomplish rainwater to yeah. soak into the soil and not cover everything in. Yeah. yeah, let's come up with some, let's look at um, what some of the choices yeah. are there and we'll come back to it. Parking maximums are a good one. So you already covered that in ARC 12. That's a really strong way to reduce impervious surface on a property. So mm -hmm. I think that'll probably do more than gravel would otherwise. Um, something else. Uh, there was one place where it's like, Here's how much drainage area you need, and there isn't any um, any option given for green roofs as an alternative to do it instead. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's a common thing, nor is it cheap. But say somebody wanted to do it as a way to meet their goals instead of having to have a giant pond, like would that be acceptable? Yeah, because that's what they do in particularly rainy and also rich countries. Just green roofs everywhere. It kind of works. Yeah, I think. Um, so I think this is a starting place. Um, what we what we think we want to do is. Um, this um, kind of right size it for Lawrence. I think that it is pretty generic in the whole scheme of things. Um, and then um, our thought was to, um, as we talked to um, Kyle, um, I'm sorry, I forget Kyle's last name. Kyle G. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to practice that later. But um, to uh, talk about um, whether or not there are some good sets of best management practices that would work in Lawrence. So those are specifically pre-designed approaches um, and bring that in for more of a conversation. So would that be like more options for yeah. parking lots and driveways yeah. versus just concrete? Yeah, we want to find the people who have written the books on 30 options um, and then see what, you know, 27 of those might work in Lawrence. That's kind of where we want to go. Get more flexibility to the builder. Right. So you can do side-by-side -side determination of, I mean, you should have, you know, at least two or three options for your site for something that's going to work for you, not and, just. And is it a builder? Like we want to pick something that we could sell, right? right? I mean, I mean, that's just my perspective. It'd be nice to have some options other than concrete. And hopefully as somebody that values us selling the houses, we'd want that house to have an aesthetic value from the street yeah. and functional value to the buyer that would, you know, not be putting gravel on a 12% slope where we know that's a, a problem for the buyer. I don't know. It, it, it it a, one of those heavy rollers. That's right. on roller. Now. Great exercise to so pack that every day. Where is um, sustainable landscaping like native? Planting. That's in landscaping section. Oh, okay. We'll get there in a minute. I'm just saying that that could also help any floodplain management. Yeah, exactly. It can. Okay, so I'm going to skip out of stormwater um, into landscaping and buffering. A couple of things we heard in our discussion with staff about this yesterday. Um, we asked what other areas. Um, need to be 
um, considered environmentally sensitive lands. And some of the feedback we got on that was um, native prairie and wetlands. And um, so I'm gonna open that up. I'm sure we have strong feelings about wetlands. Um, I know Lawrence has strong feelings about wetlands. Um, and what we heard was like, there's not a ton of native prairie that's actually gonna qualify still as native prairie, but there are some areas out there. Um, usually what we do in a situation like this is, is allow a pretty flexible approach to cluster development or conservation development. So if you've got something um, that can be preserved, we give you your density or maybe even your density plus and say, move it over here and you can make the lot smaller. Just don't build on this little piece of natural prairie, native prairie that's left. So not to say you can't build, to say you can build, but could you squish it together a little bit more? Um, and so what we would do here is we would need to figure out how we define native prairie um, and then how we define wetland. And the question that came up with staff about wetlands that we wanted to talk to um, the steering committee about is, um, we have jurisdictional wetlands, so that's Army Corps of Engineers says it's a wetland, but we also have New Lawrence land that is wet. And um, I learned yesterday about um, reasonable ducks. I don't know if I can re-explain the reasonable, if a reasonable duck can swim on it to the ocean eventually, it's a jurisdictional wetland. If an unreasonable duck sits on it and goes nowhere, it might be, what do you want to say? Right there, mm -hmm. Someone else do this better than me? Okay. Yeah. So, so, we don't want any ducks in the. We don't want any ducks. <laughs> we don't want any ducks in the go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You're really ruining my fun here. Um, so, so the, the bigger question is to this group, and I, what I have in my head is, you know, the, the whole South Lawrence Traffic Way thing, but that's jurisdictional wetlands. But as we're thinking about the entirety of the um, system, the water system um, that we have going in the community, is there any appeal to regulating outside of jurisdictional wetlands? Is there appeal to saying we value the wetlands and we want you no, know, we don't want building on it, but we are going to give you, you know, as much development and maybe a few units extra to pull off of it? Or is there so much in the way of wetland that this would be nightmarish all the way around? I think it'd be a lot easier to answer this question with the map. If we could see like where the jurisdictional wetlands actually are and be like, oh, that would affect every single plot of land in the city. And if there's non-jurisdictional wetlands that are just in a couple of places, like, hey, we can probably forget about it. But if they're everywhere, then that's a much more important decision. Okay. That I don't know if I have the info to make right now. That's a good, that is, thank you. Sorry, you got me using on the fly here. Sorry. A definition that doesn't involve ducks. I'm just thinking about this. This gets litigated because somebody's got a project that's been regulated. I, I don't know what standard or what definitions we're applying in that. Right, so. I understand that. We and it, and no ducks. <laughs> I'm just saying I like the ducks. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> we could tie some weights to the ducks, and then they definitely wouldn't go down. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's standardized, I feel better about it. Yeah, no. Okay, so we're moving away from the ducks. We will. Um, I I think Nick has our next step actually. So let's get some mapping. Jeff, do you guys have this somewhere? We probably have more or less. A grip on what might be jurisdictional, but we kind of want to see all the cow ponds and the. 
We might. I just can't recall thoughts in my head, but I think we might have something. I'd have a look. Okay. Probably knew that before lunch, but now <laughs> not so much. Good, good enough. I had duck for lunch, didn't you? <laughs> no ducks. No ducks. Okay. okay. All right. So we'll hold that one and come back to it. Okay. So into landscaping and buffering. Um, so we have pulled up just for clarity's, clarity's purposes. Clarity. Wow. Okay. Maybe I had lunch with Jeff because I'm not working here either. Mm -hmm. um, the minimal total landscaping requirement based on the zone district. So this is something that we, um, we have looked through the current code. I think this um, comes forward as a fairly similar idea, but in conversation with staff yesterday, um, we recognize that we need to take a look at um, open space requirements and um, impervious surface coverage requirements, and these need to align. So we're not, again, doing that, hey, we've just taken more property, but we gave you this super small lot, and guess what? You're not building the thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that will do. Um, but so does this look interesting or shocking to anybody? Are we um, kind of residential has the most landscaping, mixed use has slightly less, and then commercial and industrial pretty significantly less. Why would we say that R1 doesn't have to have any? Because it's a large lot. So they're probably not going to develop the entire lot in the shop. But it's they're only probably not going to develop it why, I mean, why do we say you could develop the whole thing? Why does it say that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, I mean, I, so it's, um, it's the type of development that you can do there. I suppose you could put a castle on it, um, but- With a moat. With a moat. That would probably count as landscaping, though. Mm -hmm. So we can go, so typically we don't put a landscaping requirement on larger lots. I, because but in but in this case we're not. saying they can make a duplex lot. So okay. So, so we're actually pull them into the residential. I mean we're we're this saying you can have a lot. You can add um there should housing be some and so I think part of my confusion here, and I'm kind of with you, that it seems strange that it's not, is because maybe I don't fully understand what the the definition of landscaping is in the code as it stands. I was under the impression that it's not fair dirt. Not concrete, but like natural something or other. There's mulch, there's trees, there's lawn, something like that, right? Which by definition would then be just the inverse of whatever the maximum impervious surface area is of that district, which would make R1 35%. I forget what it is. Have you got some materials requirements for the landscaping? Are there irrigation requirements too? Because that would definitely make it a different definition. And what requirements are? Irrigation. We have some irrigation requirements. Okay. Um, and... Um, so let's get let's go through and get to that. Okay. We can go to the next slide. Thank you. So one of the things that we did so that on the left is current code, and there are four types of uh, buffer yards. And I'll explain it. Sorry. What I do? There's so right now there's three types of buffer yards, right? But they have four options. You have four options of width, and so in the new um, in the proposed code, we've brought them all down to what is right now their lowest buffer requirement because we're going for more compact development, again, trying to get at this density. Um, but when we talked about this with staff, they um, they uh, pointed out that there still needs to be some alternative compliance requirements because even sometimes um, a type one buffer might still be too much to get 
a project in. Um, and so uh, we will be adding that. And then uh, just a general conversation about, you know, right now the buffer requirements have tree and shrub requirements, but they don't really say anything about fencing or about, you know, a more um, opaque screening technique. Um, but generally speaking, we were A, trying to make this simpler and B, trying to get at more compact development. So that's why we took it down from four different width options for each type to um, the least, the lowest width of each of those buffer types. Um, yeah, no, that's totally no. I was yeah. just gonna make it up totally. Yeah. We're good. It's fine. Okay. So so and then um buffering is usually taking place. Do we have the table in there? Okay, so it's usually taking place when a new um development of one type like commercial or industrial is going in next to a different type of development. So um so as Gabby said, the goal here is to recognize that we can have stuff living pretty close together. You don't have to spread it out just because it's different. Having said that, so you can see the differences between 10 feet and 20 feet. So, you know, if we're putting industrial next to something, we're looking at 20 feet, we might be looking at more than 20 feet, um, depending on how heavy the industrial is. But for the most part, this has all been skinnied up. Um, we will go in and clarify on the fencing, um, what could happen, and then probably add some standards about opacity. So like how, when you when you put a screen in, is it really like shrub and then 10 feet shrub and 10 feet shrub because there's no screening going on there. There's a row of shrubs going on there. If you really don't want to see what's next to you, you've got to plant a little bit more than that. So we'll talk about that. So even between R1 and R2, you've got buffering. If it's new going in, there's some very so minimal buffering. Thinking of family types, you still got. Yeah. So. If we'd be willing to move away from that. I think that's a recognition that most developers put buffering in from their development to the next development. I think residential is fine with a fence yeah. or with shared lots. It's not, it's not required. It's not required. Okay. So well, it depends on the district. So and our, we had this conversation with staff as well okay. about right now, this is district based, but specifically the uh, specifically single family um, came up as mm -hmm. for the same reason. So, so maybe I'm reading that wrong. So on the table between R1 and R2, you've got a type one. Am I reading that right? You got to put it. That's R1 and R2 non-residential. So would that be home occupation? Church going in or something so like that. Just strictly residential. Just strictly the non-residential. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. 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 Got it. Okay. Let's not let me talk about landscaping anymore. I, I would well, I would say that the fencing is not just for visual. Mm -hmm. It's also if you have a parking lot um, for a commercial area next to your property, right. you may not want people walking through your yard. Right. So I think that it should we should look at the difference between the types of development. Um, and it may make a difference. I think it's more important along a parking area, really, than a building site, just because of that idea that somebody gets out of their car and then just. Yeah, so there there are parking landscaping standards in here. Um, 
I think we've pretty much carried forward the current standards. Okay. We were having some discussions with staff about how those get interpreted, and so we'll add some clarity to that. Um, so we know that when it's clear enough that staff is interpreting it consistently the same time, the same way, then the applicants can interpret it consistently also. So we're going to try to fill in some of those gaps. I will echo what most said, especially when I was on the planning commission, but even on the city commission, you know, when you have infill and you have, let's say, residences kind of on three sides and you're trying to put something in there, you know, the two sides that have like the building next to it, they think the shrubs are fine. But the person who's living next to the parking lot yep. wants a fence, yep. you know, um, because of headlights or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I do think having a little bit of understanding of that, again, don't necessarily have to fence the whole thing in, maybe, but. Okay, so we picked up standards um, from the um, community design manual. So this goes back to what Kay was asking a little earlier. Um, so community design manual has some recommendations in it, and we wanted to get some feedback um, about where we want to go with some of these. So it says like xeriscaping. So xeriscaping is low water landscaping comes from zero, I want to say, comes from Greek. Um, and um, so the idea is to plant very drought tolerant <laughs> landscaping. So let's back up a second on this um, and just have a conversation about what you might call climate change and what you might not call climate change, mm -hmm. however you want to call it. Sorry, I, I, I hate to interrupt like this. I feel like I blinked and we moved away from landscape buffering really quickly. There's a couple of things I want to bring up. No, if we got landscaping or materials. So what did you want to bring up? Are we done with buffering and fences and trees and everything? I didn't say about no, that, sorry. Sorry. Okay. Also the, there was an opportunity, it seems, for shared buffer yards. So I, I feel like the way I, I read it, and I may just not be reading it correctly, or maybe it's worded mm -hmm. confusingly. It seems like if there's a use here and a use here, they're actually both in some cases require to provide a buffer yard and there doesn't seem to be any contingent for allowing them to like pull resources and be like, all right, how about instead of two 10 foot buffer yards, we just have one 10 foot and that satisfies. Only the new development has to provide it. Okay. So then there's the other one where it's like, if you're a single family home and you're building right next to a non-residential use R1, R2, are you the single family home required to build a buffer yard to protect yourself if you're what the if you don't coming in yeah okay yeah because the person the building that's already there doesn't have to buffer for you you right buffer. yeah but it's, it's not like the more intense use would be bothered by single family homes so if the single family homeowner doesn't care why should they be required to build a buffer yard first single family homeowner doesn't care second one might care we just yeah. we could decide not to care i mean if, if they want to sell their home they'll care but if in the meantime they're like i kind of like having this right next door who cares like i don't want to spend five thousand dollars for a fence should it be allowed? You know, if we want to decrease the cost of housing, that's like one more drop in the bucket, it seems. Well, and that's kind of the goal, too, of adding some sort of alternative compliance <laughs> procedure is that we could establish some of those criteria or parameters around that so that you wouldn't have everyone saying like, well, I don't want it now. So because that would cause issues down the road, because then probably nobody would do buffering. So um, that will be part of I think it is, actually. You guys have alternative compliance right now, don't you? Oh, so someone can always come in and say, I don't want to. And what are the options for alternative compliance? I think I saw like you can build a three foot wall instead of trees or, or is that if it's like too narrow buffer yard and the wall seems frankly useless. It's three feet tall, which is not buffering anything. So 
I, I don't quite understand what the alternative compliance is. Come in and tell us what else you want to do that meets the intent of what's going on here. And the intent is to protect yourself from more intense development. Yep. It just seems silly. I mean, like, if I don't care and I'm not going to sell my house in the next 30 years, like, why should I build a fence for, I mean, seems like we're kind of micromanaging people's personal castles. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good point. Um, I think there's an argument to be made for some consistency, um, you know, in terms of if everybody else, and this is not the people jumping off the cliff, if, you know, you're the fifth house in and the other four houses do have that buffer in and you want to skip it to save money, you know, is is that beneficial? <laughs> and, uh, Hold on, Nick, I'm just processing what I said here. I mean, to take that argument to its extreme, we would pitch out a lot of this, right? And we would let people do their thing. And we'd be Houston. Actually, Houston has a lot more fences than you think. It's very difficult to reverse Houston. They believe in fences. Yeah. I got that. But, um, you know, I we have done this so in residential is required to do nothing. Um, but if industrial is coming in, they don't have that same option. They will buffer themselves. Um, it's, you know, it's something that we could put out for community comment or, you know, see what people think about it. What does the rest of the group think about this? Well, we, your example was residential against slightly more intense, like maybe duplex or like a small copy shop that's for like a class B home occupation, right? Where it's like a non-residential use of a otherwise pretty residential looking thing. And I should, I should clarify, I'm really only talking about not mandating the less intense use buffer itself from the more intense use. When the more intense use is going in, there should definitely be a requirement for that. I'm not against that at all. I just think that if the less intense use doesn't care, they shouldn't be required to protect themselves. I think as a builder, I kind of agree with giving that latitude to the buyer uh, just from the context of affordable housing. I would also agree. I mean, if, and I mean, in terms of future issues, I mean, if a buyer doesn't care that they may lose some potential resale value because they don't have additional buffer, I mean, that's, I think that's their choice to make. Or if they choose to sell the house and they get enough feedback that they need to have a fence, they can negotiate that with the sale. Right. Just not being required at the time that I'm building the house. It sounds like we're saying residential for the most part. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I, I'm just in line with mm -hmm. Nick and your comment about just residential. Because mm -hmm. I'm just tying that back to affordability for housing and what the requirements are that we continue to place on. It says to me as a home builder. I don't want to be required to have that. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be prevented from it. But right. I don't want to be required. required. I'd like the option. What that, I mean, the, the idea of, of having it up front is one thing, um, but all the things that go into that being maintained and kept over the decades. There's a lot of cost there. Yeah. So here's I mean, the after the initial price. Yeah. yeah. Years ago, I was so proud of our Orient neighborhood when Bert Nash wanted to develop a housing um, complex. And they said, we're going to build a fence. And the neighborhood said, we don't have fences in our neighborhood. We want you to mow the grass and we want you to paint the house. <laughs> you know, so not everybody wants a fence. Okay. Other voices? 
I want to change the subject. <laughs> um, we didn't talk about trees. So, we haven't done trees yet. Yeah, well, you choose. We're going to go on to we're keep trees going. of Buffalo. Are you talking about trees of Buffalo? No, I'm, well, it's 1407. I don't know what. I don't know. I'm not following you, actually, but in okay. 1407, it's uh -huh. trees that I want to talk about. Um, there, there shouldn't, there should be native trees encouraged rather than fast growing weedy, sticky trees. Um, I think the city has a tree list. I know, and but in here, and it does mention the tree list, um, but it also doesn't talk about not native trees and. Places. Yeah, so that's some of the feedback we got from staff. It's time to think about updating the tree list. And um, I mean, thank you. That's you know, um, that you know, it's really important to have um, a diverse mix of trees, um, and it, it's time to think about where to go with that. Um, so, yep, that is definitely on the list. Okay. But, they, but they have to be short trees so we can maintain our solar ability. If, and yeah, that right. needs to be yeah. taken into consideration because if you want to put solar over parking, you don't want to have trees in the way. So there's lots of those sorts of things that have to be considered. We want solar in the winter, when, so we want trees with leaves. <laughs> so I thought that on the xeriscaping section was kind of interesting that it says the, the following xeriscaping landscaping techniques shall be used to the maximum extent practicable. And it's all these things like use native. You know, minimize the amount of irrigated turf area. Who is enforcing this? Botanists, egg oh, scientists, exactly. so it's very aspirational. Not enforcing any of this. Do we have a staff for that? Section we have staff for that. So oh, yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ideas floating around um, in here about what we can use and what we can't use um, for plant materials. So what I was going to ask um, the group was. Um, in terms of landscaping, if we, um, we don't have it up, we have um, a few ideas going here, and we just wanted to get um, some feedback. If Lawrence is interested in moving um, away from the lawns, from turf grass, from thinking we're England, into something that be drought tolerant or something that could have native or adapted adapted plants, something um, with a water budget. Curious to know what the, what the ideas are in this group about what the future of landscaping is. Um, if we have more storms or hotter summers, colder winters, more hail. Oh, I mean, I've done a couple of projects um, yeah. in the past with native buffalo grass yeah. that was mm -hmm. native here. And I think my personal opinion on it is it's very resilient to Kansas, mm -hmm. but it has a three year um, Takes a while to period get to get established. Yeah. Okay. And um, it also browns up very early in the summer and doesn't get green until late in the spring. And so I think my challenge with that was trying to sell it was, hey, I never held the property for three years to right. get it established. And most of the time the homeowner didn't. 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 <laughs> and aesthetically, that's a pretty hard sell for people that are used to irrigated yards. Right. But I mean. So uh, I, 
interject something here. So the Sustainability Advisory Board has been working on uh, native landscape being um, ordinance to replace some of the, the noxious, noxious weeds uh, code. And we actually had some recommendations planned last year, but we were said, wait a minute, we're doing this code update thing, so stop. And so we split the uh, information out. We do have a recommendation about uh, natural landscaping, and that would allow people to plant native uh, plants with a plan that would include getting the plant approved by Parks and Rec and, uh, and managing it as a native landscape. But we need to get away from specific xeriscaping because the area may not be specifically geared towards xeriscaping. It may be native plants instead of Specific. Yeah, so I think we would love to see a copy of that. Yes, I will be glad to. Okay, cool. Um, thank you. Just, you just happen to have one. <laughs> I, I'll give you this one. I'll, let me send you the electronic version because we're so like The other things we've been talking about this evening, some people will want to do native. Some people will still want a grass lawn. Right. Some people might want to do something more xeric. And so we're trying to figure out what our range of possibilities could look like. You know what you don't have on the list? What don't I have on the list? Gardens. So we do have yes. some garden land, some garden, right. I mean, but I think it's important do, for people to be able to have tomato plants and pepper plants. And the only part of my yard that has sun is the front yard. So are we running out of time? No. So can you not garden in your front yard? I do garden in my front yard, okay. but I'm just saying we want to be clear that you can garden in your front yard. Right. I'm very lucky because I have terraces, terraces, so it's very contained. I think it's hard, though, because a significant amount of the landscaping code is single family detached dwellings are exempt. Right. So how do we how would the code effectively achieve that is where my head goes. I don't know if the code has to. I think water. Building rates are a huge tool in changing lawns <laughs> and the city Lawrence did actually update the water rates fairly recently where you basically have like much time average and yeah and depending on how much you would see that in the summer you get slammed with higher rates so like you definitely get a penalty with a pool or a thirsty yard. But this only this section only applies to things that require a site planning right. approval process. That is true. So, so no, what Kay is, what Kay is talking about, that. I mean, Kay and the environmental folks are proposing an ordinance that applies to single family yeah. yes. developments. And so, we're so functionally, as well as other things yeah. too. And we're very lucky to have some restaurants that want to grow right. herbs and yeah. vegetables yeah. on their property. So, you know, Bon Bon was connected with the garden. So we don't want to limit that it shouldn't be just their escaped plants. Right. It could be gardens, it could be yeah. community gardens, it could be other native plantings that are sustainable. Yeah. Um, okay. Replace the whole zero escape right. section with just a more a broader. Yeah. Okay, so don't read this again. No. <laughs> <laughs> coming back is something different. Just pretend it never existed. If you feel good, you can just like get a pen and scratch it out. We'll come back. This was from the community design manual, so we'll revise it to make it more specific. So the 
the residential landscaping is that is the idea of that to allow um, the use of native plants and not have it um, be called weeds. Exactly. Okay. 12 inches, you get it picked. That ticket. So no, we usually don't do we that. don't do as much with noxious weeds in this code. Well, it under our the code, we call it noxious weeds. It's weird. I don't know why it's called. I thought that was already allowed. I mean, I know multiple people who have ripped up their lawns. Because nobody's enforcing it. But I thought it was like the even the agriculture and your front yards thing. Like, I thought that Lauren specifically put forth an ordinance to say, like, you don't have to have a lawn. You can have something else. As long as it's not obnoxiously called lawn, you know? Well, but they still get tickets. That's when they're if neighbors of neighbors. They can get it. Are they actually native plants or are they just noxious weeds? I mean, how do you? They could be grass that's but isn't the county responsible for well that's another issue that's another yeah okay why don't you give what you have if you think it's not there i i do think that's part of it i mean i mean i've seen several versions of it over the last two years from you know um going as far as in one version new residential developments the lawns can only be, you know, like you only have so much grass. The rest of it has to be impervious. And yes. I, I think you backed off of that. Right. But, that was but so I just want why don't you give them what you have yeah. and then we'll see how much of it fits okay. in here or not. Sounds good. Here's a question. How does it work when you have neighborhoods that have neighborhood covenants that require irrigated lawns? That require irrigated, irrigated lawns. Can't do anything about it right so now. The, the city does their rules and the covenants have their own rules. Um, if we're not doing anything limiting turf grass, then they can have irrigated lawns. And I don't think we're proposing it, but if someone wants to, that would be a you know, different way forward. And then those regulations yes. only apply within the subdivision that has the covenants. Um, so question. my question was um, to you guys, and staff also. Um, so typically we do a landscape review when a new development goes in and then nothing after that. And so we want, I want to know um, how do we want this to apply long-term? So I was told that um, when you have a new development, you have to maintain that particular landscape for a certain number of years, or it if you decide to change it, then it impacts your, um, whether it's new construction or whether, I, maybe that's, this is not true, but that's what um, our company man said to me. Um, so that you have a certain amount of landscape and, then if you want to totally change it before a certain number of years, then it it invokes a new act activity or new development. A new, new plan? New, yeah, new plan, new site plan. Usually people will come in with a new landscaping plan if they want to do it. It's not necessarily a set number of years and it expires. It runs as the landscaping plan with the property until it's either redeveloped or adjusted. And so if somebody comes in and, you know, trees might not survive winter and they don't get replaced. If somebody lets us know about that, we go out, we check, we get with somebody to, you know, talk about getting those trees replaced. But if somebody wants to come in and do uh, 
older landscaping plan. We can take a look at that as part of the site planning process and make sure it meets all the code requirements, let them know here's where the easements are, here's where the utility lines are at, kind of give them that guidance. So is there a certain size of property that that makes when you have a, have a site plan? It's really just about the development intensity that goes on, but it also depends on use. So like detached dwellings, duplexes don't get site planned, but an apartment complex. Commercial. Commercial would get site planned as part of it. So it just depends on a little bit of that variety. It, it's on a complaint basis. Yeah. You, know, you can come through and say, question. yeah. So it is on all the these shrubs die. Mm -hmm. Tell the person to replace them. Then you talk to the city and. It's not always complaint based. Sometimes they come out and spot check if you have bushes that have died because oh. they have code and enforcement officers come out to your site plan. Not very often, but. There's just times where there's a harsh winter or a, a difficult summer and some things don't make it. And you just really let people know, hey, that's. That was supposed to be there, and you know we understand it didn't make it. We also typically don't have people to plant trees in periods of time when they won't make it through. It's just a waste of effort and money. So, you know, just get it when it's the best moment for that tree to go back in, and you know, all is well. Thank you. Okay, we're going to switch to exterior lighting, and then we're going to um, come back and give you a little more um, input on what we've heard. We have our handouts here. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to share those. Let's go through exterior lighting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, this sort of just captures the highlights, but if anyone wants to dive into specific details that you notice, happy to. Um, generally speaking, these have been updated to reflect um, just modern lighting practice. Um, so new LED standards, <clears throat> as well as things like color yeah. uh, Correlated temperature CCT, which is essentially how warm a light is. It's not directly related to how bright it is, but it is related to how bright people perceive it to be. Um, just like everything in lighting, it's weirdly technical. However, the, um, the experts of dark sky, so what used to be the International Dark Sky Association, who has since rebranded as Dark Sky International, um, recommends um, a maximum of like 3,000, which is right before it gets into that pure white. So it's slightly more on the low white side um, so that there's not as much um, like glare and light being emitted into the night sky. Um, so that's a piece of it, but that's one small piece of it. Um, the um, we also had some requirements in there from the community design manual, um, and we clarified things about light trespass at the property line, um, as well as specific standards for specific types of lighting. So everything from um, outdoor recreation lighting to athletic field lighting, which has um, some flexibility with it, since obviously those are naturally very bright lights. Um, um, as well as things like lighting within canopies and um, pedestrian scaled. So um, we really just included the highlights here, but if anyone has something that immediately jumps out um, about outdoor lighting that have questions or want to give feedback on, we're happy to hear it. I just make a general statement that I think we have too many lights. Too many lights? Yeah. would like it to be darker at night. Yeah, it's nice yeah. to see the is sky. It, yeah. Is it too many lights, or is it that it's hard to see the sky, or that it's too bright at the ground level? That's a weird question. But no, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's dark out, right? Right. <clears throat> Light in day. 
and I mean, we have headlights on our vehicles to guide us. I'm not saying we don't need street lights. I think there's strategic places for lights where, you know, there's places to like crosswalks, et cetera, that need to be illuminated and, you know, various sidewalk areas. But how do you balance that with safety? Yeah, safety well, is important too. Yeah. So, I, mean, I feel like I feel like there's maybe different jurisdictions here. I think we're talking about stuff on sites, which is paint right. code, but you might be talking about stuff on streets, which is MSO. So that's a totally different thing, and that's yeah. engineering Lights science standards. Yeah, I would kind of all. I mean, they, they they do intermix, you know, because you have a lot of overlay depending on the location of the buildings, commercial buildings, in relation to <laughs> street lights. And, uh, I wonder about like a multimodal pathway that. Mm -hmm. Bikes and walkers, joggers, in the evenings, the people. Yeah, yeah. this is really private sunlight hours. Property light. I don't, I'm not arguing. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't know that I have an. I mean, you could illuminate your bike. You could wear a headlamp. Um, yeah. Someone asked me this question the other day, and I didn't know the answer. If you have a commercial building that has lights on it, you know, Dylan. I mean, do you have to keep them on all night. Can you turn yeah. them off? You're actually supposed yeah. to turn them off You're unless to, they are right. for. And so that was the yeah. question. Can you make people turn them off when they're not open? Versus safety, like I want to protect my building, so I want lights on my building. The question for me was can we require people to turn their lights off at night? Like like I'm the, not sure that's a development code question, but. Like the parking lot yeah. lights could easily be on. Yeah, like some places, you know, leave the parking lot lights on all night. There's no there. I mean, the place is closed. So we do have a new standard in here. Question. It shall remain off between 11 p.m. and sunrise, except for security purposes, or to eliminate walkways, driveways, equipment, and for security purposes. Yeah, we need to change that to um, or after the close of business, because some places will stay open later in a college town at 11 o'clock. And it would be a certain, uh, I mean, sometimes businesses close to the public, but they're not close to their employees. Okay. So what are security purposes? That's discretion. I mean, do you, who, who defines security purposes? We can have a list. Okay. So I'm curious, did, did we spend much time thinking about the lighting and the parking lot landscaping? Standards. You mean the how many trees we put in underneath the, the street lights so that it's dark underneath trees? So how tall are you putting in the lights in the parking lot? They're probably twelve foot poles. So if you plant a tree that's going to grow over twelve feet, shouldn't you be okay? Well, but yeah, we do a lot of small sure. the lights to light the ground. Then we plant a tree to make sure that the lights block from getting too right. so yeah. nicer and then the redbud tree is a natural uh, native species. Yeah. And that's not, not so. Yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. I mean, you go through a lot of the parking lots at night and, and there's all these dark spots around because the lights are just I guess my comment earlier about lighting stemmed from just the idea of like, if we're trying to move towards net zero, like there's a lot of costs for lighting in a city and in a community and for businesses. And, um, you know, so, I mean, those are big kind of macro ideas, but or do we put solar, solar on all solar the lights? They can be solar I mean, lights, which is a lot. Like Dylan's already has that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I certainly think just looking at this, going back to, you know, 10 years ago when I was on the planning commission where you didn't have all this, you know, everyone was worried about spillover. Now everyone knows you can create lights that do not get to my land, get them off my land, you know, don't, don't have any spillover. And I think that's directional, directional, yeah. all that stuff. Is, talk to KU in their stadium lights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can do it, but will they? <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I mean I like the updates to that. I think we'll head in the right direction. It's not during the football games. It's when they're recruiting. Oh my! (laughs) And they they take somebody to the football stadium and and light the whole thing. That's like the whole thing up. So we need to. If they're in there. Okay, so the three handouts that we gave you guys, we've been giving out um, at the outreach meetings. So the um, the first one is this one with the dot on it. This is um, intended to be more of a major um, version. So if someone wants to find something in the code that's related to a thing that they're curious about, um, this gets them into it. We've been giving these out. This is on the website. It's on the website also. So if people want to get into any of the modules and find their stuff that's in there. Um, Gabby's got some slides, thanks, Becky, on um, how we're meeting our affordable housing equity and sustainability um, goals. So you guys have this written out also on the website. We'll go through it in a second here. Also letting people know where we are in the project. And then finally, the third one is um, where we're starting to get into the um, housing types. Do not mind? I like that. Um, so explains people when we're talking about um, a two-family, a two-unit dwelling or a courtyard development, what is it? Um, so this is on the website also. Oh, we printed it with um, um, somebody's stuff on the backside. That would be something I would know. No, no, no. The what I'll add about the housing types is um uh if you get a chance to come over to the open house after this, um, this goes with one of um the boards that we have where we actually have an exercise for folks to do where it asks um for each of these types of housing. Um, is it appropriate in Lawrence generally? Is it appropriate only in certain areas? And we ask for a little bit more feedback on what that would mean, or is it not suitable in Lawrence? And then that is also getting um, converted into an online survey. So for people who don't have a chance or didn't have a chance to come to the open houses and do that, um, they'll be able to do that online as well. Um, so those kind of go hand in hand. Is that, going to, is that going to be in Lawrence listens? Is that the mechanism that you're going to use for the survey? It'll be a survey um, on the project website is how you'll access it. It'll be separate from Lawrence listens. Okay. Well, why aren't we using that platform? If we use the one that they've got for the project family. But if but if the larger public is more familiar with with the other, so you can get to the project website from the city's website. Is that the question? There's a link. There's a, no. I'm just trying to be difficult. Okay, no, no. We have a we have a, a platform we use occasionally called Lawrence Listens yeah. for all sorts of different things where we send stuff out. People would sign up for it, mm-hmm. and so it would hit a broader audience. 
the okay. people who come to it. Okay. That was my point. So we so can we sit on, sorry, we'll talk to the communications team. Yeah. 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 yeah, see how we're going to use okay. that. Thank yeah. you. Yes. It should be interesting because we actually did a survey like that not too long ago. I think it was like the affordable housing survey of uh, 2019 or something. Okay. And it was a very similar question to that. It was like, here's the types of housing. Do you want these at all? Do you want these in Lawrence? Do you want these in your neighborhood? And almost everybody said like, yeah, apartments are great, not in my neighborhood. So we're very curious to see if housing opinions have changed over the past couple of years <laughs> through COVID and rising housing prices, if people have softened on that notion. That'll give us an idea of kind of what we're uh, wading into here. Yeah. I suspect the uh, the person giving the information is giving a report to that they already live in a house. Um, they might answer different than they're waiting for a place to live. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And that's we also had two housing developments that just got denied so that clearly some of those people don't want yeah. apartments. A lot of people showing up against it for sure. I'm going to Okay, so let's talk about where we are so far in the drafting. So this is the um, petite that has a calendar on it. So let's go through. Um, just this is these are some things that are on the coach. Um, we're not asking for feedback from you guys. We're just letting you know where we are on this. So um, on affordable housing, the um, shift from on street parking to on street maximum parking. Um, why does that relate to housing? Because it, in theory, allows more development on the site. Does this solve our parking problem? No, it doesn't. Um, but we intend to have more discussions about parking and identifying what the problem is and where to go from there. Flexible residential design standards to encourage and fill in redevelopment, um, allowing dimensional adjustments um, for projects that provide local employees. So um, this is what we talked about last time. If you voluntarily provide um, housing that has um, a restriction on it, that it will be offered to a local employee first. Um, and we will have to put guidelines in place to define that because everyone jumped in with 40,000 things that could possibly go wrong. Um, so we'll work on narrowing that down. Um, or income-restricted, um, technically affordable housing. There are provisions for the courtyard and small lot development. So again, the smaller lots, the smaller units, the more density, the more development. Let's go on the next one. Yes. I'll, I'll just say, yeah. um, you know, at one point the city um, offered, actually, I think it was the city offered um, incentives if you did not um, rent to students. Yeah, we're hearing more of that. Yeah. So the the idea was I just what really I, I, that's just yeah. it's a little legally a little shaky. You know? no. Incentive if you don't. Just, oh, there's an incentive. If you don't. Okay. An, okay. Yeah, it wasn't a requirement, but there was an incentive if you don't relate to students. Wow. Students are not a protected class. So the I mean, so example, the idea like was single family uh, community like you know, the residential communities of Lawrence. Well, it was in the Orient neighborhood. Um, I think it usually works is that the community will say we have this pot of money and we know you could rent to a student for $1,000 a month, but a teacher can only afford $700 a month. We're going to kick in the difference and we have to rent. We want you to rent to that teacher instead of the student. Um, you know, whether or not there's income disparity between the teachers and the students, we know that we need the teachers, firefighters, the police officers. To be able to live in Lawrence um, makes it more likely they're going to keep working for Lawrence. So 
that's uh, it's a priority voluntary choice in that situation. I will say those things are incredibly hard to enforce. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're hard to enforce, but okay, our commitment was for 10 years and now we've done it for 23. Yep. <laughs> we can check out what that was. And we have a student or we have a teacher and we have somebody who works at the community mercantile and somebody who cuts hair. All community residents. All community Please. residents. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Marcy. We'll look further into that program and see what it does. Equity. It's not an existing program. Oh, but you kept on doing it because it was working well, is what you were saying. Well, we thought it was a good idea and yes. said we can do it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. For equity, um, we have reduced site standards that limit or prohibit redevelopment and reinvestment. We still have more to do on the non-conforming standards. Those tend to get in the way of reinvestment, but we're, we'll be looking at that. Um, so far, so in equity, we'll be doing um, more in the administrative procedures. That's where we can catch a lot of that. And then finally, in sustainability, um, the options for the cluster development are in there to conserve environmentally sensitive areas um, or provide open space. I think we drafted it a little more openly than that. Um, there are um, preliminary mobility and connectivity standards. So to increase the safety of and access to the city's multimodal transportation system, I think we're gonna to need to come back to this one for a little more discussion about what it means that the code might be out in front of the city's planning. Um, we have um, added standards to um, evaluate and improve. We have evaluated and improved the city's bike parking requirements to um, be adjusted to the uses a little more closely. Um, working through the um, American, the Association of Pedestrian and Bicycle Professional Standards. We've got the preliminary electric vehicle parking requirements and incentives in there. Um, Gary brought up the discussion that we're kind of hearing across different topics. Why do we care? In the kindest way, why do we care? Um, and so we need to circle back to that one and finish out that discussion. We might have our December meeting focused on what are the things that we want to amplify and what are the things that we just want to stop regulating? We don't have to keep regulating everything just because the city did already. So and it's kind of the change in parking. So let's let's be thoughtful about where we want to go. Um, there are some basic sustainability requirements for new development, um, such as waste diversion, which is um, also related to Marcy's issue um, about site planning and getting dumpsters on site, um, allowing for and allowing for on-site food production. Um, we've started looking at the stormwater management standards. There are ridgeline development standards in there. I didn't spend a ton of time on them. We can come back to them. Um, and then preliminarily water-wise. Um, so that was so water-wise development for the those of you that don't live in landscaping standards. There are some plants that do better with less water. And we want to encourage the use of those in situations where we think we're going to have long, hot summers and we don't want to use up the water. Um, but we have some other things that we want to add to that because we do want to build options out there. So, so um, that's it. We have five minutes left. <laughs> right. Because but we did talk a whole lot along the way. And we have a December 7th meeting. I think we decided we would do this at the last meeting. We are going to do a virtual meeting on December 7th from 4 to 6. Is that okay with everybody still? Yeah. I may be on the train. Do they have Wi-Fi on the 
I'll let you know and I'll ask that. Is that the Baldwin train here? Uh, <laughs> Washington, D.C., the Raleigh, North Carolina. That was lovely. Beautiful. Um, so Gary had a big question for us. Let's we'll put it out there and then we can go chew on it and bring it back sure. at the December 7th meeting. Sure. And we can shoot everyone an email reminding them what it was. Yeah, we touched on this a little bit um, the last time we were together. And the, uh, the topic is about how do we plan for, how do we bring um, more uh, specific planning about sustainability, uh, renewable energy um, into the discussion on land development. Um, there's a couple components of this. Um, there's you know, the, the, the generation of, of the power and how that happens. Um, we talked a little bit about that, you know, passively and actively. There's the, the technology is changing um, all the time, um, but there's the consumption of it uh, that really is driving a lot of it. And we learned as we've done work with solar and, and now on wind that the, the forecasts for um, energy consumption are exponential. And there are current ways of thinking about it um, simply won't meet the, the coming demand. So how do we think about giving everyone access to the grid? Um, how do we think about providing for, in, in, in the way we develop, so that it doesn't become something that exists in one neighborhood and not another, that doesn't become a barrier to some? But how do we think about that need, that ubiquitous need that's coming? And how do we work with utilities in a different way? You know, today we just build a neighborhood and, and things happen and utilities come in and they kind of make the connections the best that they can. And we we give them, you know, awesome powers like eminent domain to, to make up for things that maybe we hadn't planned earlier. But what if um, utilities were more a part of the discussion about how our our community, how our town, how our our um, development was planned. What would that look like? How would we think about storage in ways that not even on our radar today? Um, this is a little science fictiony, but not. It's just really happening. Kind of a tidbit. We talked about the limitations of the grid's ability to absorb current power. The game changer is going to be in storage. And if you you talk to the utilities, what they'll tell you is that um, the very vehicles that are driving this exponential demand will become a part of the grid's storage. Right? The part of that capacity to to absorb and 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 move, you know, between the the daytimes and the nighttime. So it's a paradigm different than what we think about and how we plan today. And I just think that we ought to have that as a part of. That's almost all the conversations we have about what we build ought to be on that infrastructure list. And in that same time, we have to help the state understand that it's regulated in a way that we can't do anything different mm -hmm. with our um, current utility situation because of their business model and because the Kansas Corporation Commission requirements. So that means our community is also going to have to get involved in helping change the shape of the state. And, and after having sat through three day-long meetings on the special committee on utilities, 
it's really not at this point the Kansas Corporation Commission that's setting a lot of the standards. It's the Southwest Power Pool. They are our balancing authority, and um, they have been asked to increase capacity um, for all the units. So we are really lucky that we have a lot of wind that we get, but the utilities are being required to make investments um, in capacity and um, coal is rated, wind is rated, hydro is rated as to how effectively they can deliver. And they're having to meet those capacity standards. So it is not just the Kansas Corporation Commission. Right. No, I, I, True I, things. Yeah. The other thing, I, and you mentioned a little bit, I know Mike Allman has put something out, which is also like, how does this code to treat community um, community energy. You know, if you want to build a community, community, solar, community yeah. solar, community wind that you build, you want to build, what if someone wants to build a neighborhood that's not on the grid? That's all. You can't do that right now. By you can't, but, it, but, if, but do we want to, you know, or well, you how does, do or. Yes, you can do anything off the grid if you don't want to be connected. Completely off the grid. You yeah, can do it if you're completely off the, off the grid. You can't be it's partly on the grid and partly off. Anyway, the point is, like, how does that, you know, and we'll get into this. Do those solar panels, do they count as impervious surface? How do they, do they account, do they count as part of your open space? Or, do, or is that, how do you count? If you have that, you know, all good questions. I would just, I would just love for us to, to have this idea of what's, what this city on the hill looks like, mm -hmm. and as we do our planning, ask the questions: Are we, are we, you know, connecting the dots in our way? Are we doing everything? I think an opportunity to work with utilities. Um, so to to help this discussion um, along, and I know everyone wants to really go with the dots on our boards in a minute. But um, uh, as your total team, we're going to do some research. We're going to see if we can find some case studies. We know there are some case studies. Um, to share back with you. We don't expect you guys to go Google how do we want to do energy planning in the future. So we'll try to get that out a couple weeks before the December meeting. Oh, for your Thanksgiving reading. That's what you're looking for. Hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe after Thanksgiving before the meeting, we can start the conversation. It might be a bit longer than that, but I you know, none of us has a great crystal ball, but this one seems pretty reasonable. Um if anyone has other reasonable crystal ball issues. Bring them up. So thank you for the lively <laughs> this evening. It was great. I, I'm sad that you guys are duck haters, but <laughs> not all of us are duck haters. We'll move on. That's okay. Um, and I look forward to talking to everyone on the seventh. Um, uh, join us um, tomorrow morning for coffee. We'll be at the station. Um, and otherwise, we will go do some redrafting. We'll listen to the public, and we'll come back and talk to you guys in December. So, are there going to be dots tomorrow? There will be dots tomorrow. Okay. okay. Well, so, redrafting going to affect? Is that going to affect what's already on the conveyor site? Like, are you going to update that draft, or are you going to wait till module no, three? Okay, that's good. That's what I was hoping. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> we're going to make comments. Yeah. Oh, I got to know the light. 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 I got to know the light.